Welcome to the Beer Makes History podcast presented by Yield Tavern Tours. This 10-episode series explores Boston during the American Revolution and beer's role in all of it. I'm Brooke, one of your hosts. I have a PhD in American history, I founded Yield Tavern Tours, and I'm an author and beer lover. In each episode, we pair a beer with our history, and that's where my co-host comes in. I'm Kristen. I'm a PhD student in history, a tour guide for Yield Tavern Tours, and I'll be talking about the beer pairings in each episode, which means I'll be drinking a lot for research. So join us as beer makes history. Thanks for joining us for episode two. Today, we're going to talk about Boston from 1763 to 1764 and how Great Britain tried to solve an economic crisis. We've got two key players today, which is really fun. But first, Kristen and this episode's beer. We are drinking Nettles from Allagash Brewery in Portland, Maine. Thanks so much to them for sending us this bottle. It's a little bit of a pricey bottle, so we really appreciate them sending it to us. We chose this beer today because we're going to be talking a lot about rum, and this beer was aged in rum barrels. Awesome. Yeah. It also has a cork and bonnet, like a champagne bottle might, so there's a lot for you to get ready over there, Brooke. Okay, the bonnet's off. We've got a Pop the cork. Yes. Lovely. Okay, I'm gonna pour this out. One of the best sounds. It's like champagne, but it's beer. <laughs> well, it's as exciting. Mm-hmm. Ooh. I already got some aroma on this puppy. Okay. Huzzah! Huzzah! Whoa, this tastes like a sour. I wasn't expecting that because of the amber color. It is. It's technically a wild ale, which is a type of sour. I'll talk more about sour beers in a minute. First, if we were doing this as an official beer tasting, you actually don't start with the tasting notes in your mouth. You start with what you smell on the nose. So taking a sniff, which I could really smell this while you were pouring. This is where the rum aromas come out for me. It does not smell like a sour. It smells just malty, a little sweet. I'm also getting some cooking spices because this is aged on barrels. Think vanilla, things like that, that are coming off of the nose. But then when we take a sip, which Brooke already did, I already did too, but take another one for research. This is when it hits you with the sour. Yeah. So sours are famous for having just a bit of a tart vinegar and some acidic notes. Not too much to overwhelm you, just really refreshing and palate cleansing. With this one, I'm getting a lot of red fruit, cherry, raspberry, but then because of the rum aromas, it's really balanced out and almost even has a a sweet, creamy finish. This beer is delicious. It is. I happen to really like sours. I know sours aren't everyone's thing, but this is a good starter sour for people who want to try it because it's it's really yummy. It's a fancy one, but yeah. why not start fancy? <laughs> so sours as a category of beer is actually a quite new concept. And what this is, is allowing wild yeast into the beer making process. Historically, however, 
all beers had wild yeast, so they all tasted a little sour because beer makers lacked the sterile environment needed to monitor everything that goes into the beer. Mm. They would often use starters or vessels from previous beer batches, and those would have some wild yeast left over, some bacteria in it. It's easy for you to imagine. So you would get these sour tastes. Nowadays, people do it on purpose. Now, I can assure you that Allagash Brewing Company is very sterile. That's nice of you. (laughs) They opened in 1995 in Portland, Maine as a one-man show. I love Allagash Brewing just as a brief aside. They were the makers of one of the first craft beers I ever tasted, Allagash White. Uh, That was actually the first beer that they ever made. Really? At Allagash Brewing Company. Hmm. Yes. They've gotten a lot bigger since then. One man show, one beer. Now it's available in 17 states. And a little bit about the name Nettles. You might be racking your brain. Why would it be called this? Well, I don't think you're going to come up with it on your own. I find this a very sweet story. The name of the beer comes from Ned, the brewery's first employee. He's now started his own company, New England Distilling. So that's where Allagash got the rum barrels to age this beer from. And then they named it after their first employee. Cute. So cute. So rum sour beer like the colonists would have drunk, and people working together. I am so excited for this pairing today. Brooke, what about you? Well, I'm excited because this beer is delicious, mm-hmm. first and foremost. And this episode's got an epic tavern brawl, so that's kind of fun, too. We left off last episode in 1763 with Boston being economically depressed and Great Britain in staggering debt as a result of the French and Indian War, which had just ended. Britain had gained a lot of land in North America in this war, and they needed to station troops there to protect this ground from the French and Indians that they'd just fought. And this stationing was going to cost money. Uh-oh. George Grenville, Prime Minister of Great Britain, thought if he could charge some sort of customs tax on the colonies, he'd be able to raise revenue. And this wouldn't be the first time that Parliament which is Great Britain's legislative body, had tried to tax colonists. In fact, Parliament had spent the last 30 years trying to tax a popularly imported good. That good was rum. (laughs) The Molasses Act was passed in 1733, and it taxed foreign molasses imported into the colonies. Now, what does rum have to do with molasses? Rum was made from this molasses, which is a byproduct of sugar, and that sugar was grown in the Caribbean, where it had been cultivated by African slaves. Rum was a thriving industry in Massachusetts, with over 60 distillers producing nearly 3 million gallons of rum annually. Seems like so much. It is so much. Is rum still made from molasses today? Not nearly as frequently. There is one local distiller in Massachusetts that I know of who's making a molasses based rum and I hardly actually notice a difference in the taste. Mm. Now, because colonies were supposed to support the mother country, colonists should primarily be importing goods from the mother country or their colonies. Now, if the colonists actually paid the required tax on molasses, it would have been a significant source of revenue for Britain. But problematically for the crown, greedy customs officials could be easily bought off for much less than the cost of the tax. 
Then those customs officials would miraculously transform molasses imported from the French Caribbean islands and call it molasses from the British West Indies. <laughs> Honestly, that makes sense. If they could make more money off bribes than they could off of the little bit of the tax they get, why wouldn't you take bribes? Yeah, poof, all of a sudden this molasses is coming from the British West Indies and then no merchants are charged with smuggling because it appeared to be coming from the British Caribbean. This bribery has two consequences. First, the Crown makes very little money on the Molasses Act. And secondly, and more significantly for the rest of the podcast, men in Boston and Massachusetts seem to think it was their right to not pay taxes. <laughs> now, George Grenville's solution to his massive debt is to revamp the Molasses Act in the form of the American Duties Act. Sounds intense. It is. It's passed in 1764. It has a much less intense nickname, though. It's known as the Sugar Act because one of the act's components was a three penny tax on foreign molasses. The act claimed that, quote, new provisions and regulations should be established for improving the revenue of this kingdom, end quote, and for, quote, this is a handful, for defraying the expenses of defending, protecting, and securing the same, the same being the kingdom. Improving the revenue, defraying the expenses of defending, these reasons aren't going to sit well with the colonists. Uh-uh. And smuggling wasn't going to be as easy this time around as it was with the Molasses Act, because the Sugar Act actually has the muscle to be enforced. Under the new law, the British Navy was now empowered to seize any ship believed to be skirting paying its taxes. A portion of the contraband went to the customs official who seized the hull, which greatly incentivizes them to capture more ships. By the way, Kristen, Grenville didn't believe that his Sugar Act would greatly diminish this big national debt or pay for all of the troops stationed throughout North America. So I have to ask, why then did he pass it? <laughs> well, he felt the colonists needed to pay something. They couldn't just be freeloaders. They needed to pay something to maintain their colonies with these troops now stationed. And after minimal debate, Parliament passes Grenville's Sugar Act. This is a key moment in American history, not to be too extreme here. Yeah. <laughs> we know with hindsight now that the Sugar Act is a problem because Massachusetts had been living on their own for nearly a century and a half. They'd been governing and taxing themselves. They'd been smuggling, <laughs> all with very little interference from the Crown. So now here the Crown is trying to take money from them. And not only had they been ruling themselves, but they'd been thriving doing so. That's right. And the towns in Massachusetts were mostly autonomous. They were let be. <laughs> they conducted their own town meetings, which dealt almost exclusively with local matters. And such town meetings had been around since the 17th century. So men in Massachusetts, and by the way, that's not just Boston, but that's all throughout Massachusetts. Men, and it is men here, grew up having a say in their government. An additional problem with taxing Massachusetts to pay for the French and Indian War was that the colonists felt they'd already paid for that war with their own blood, as you remember from the previous episode. Right. We talked about how Massachusetts sent more soldiers than any other colony to fight in this war. So asking for money to pay down a debt seems a little ridiculous. Yeah, it's double dipping. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Fight and then pay for the fighting. And many of the people in Boston recognized the dangers of the Sugar Act as soon as word spread about its passage. They didn't need hindsight to know it was dangerous. 
any tax imposed by parliament is going to be annoying. But the Sugar Act was especially troubling because it's going to impact Massachusetts more than other colonies. One member of parliament, Thomas Watley, claimed the Sugar Act is, quote, spread lightly over a great variety of subjects and lies heavy upon none, end quote. This isn't true, though. Watley's a liar. <laughs> Why exactly is that, Brooke, as I grab my nettles to prime this answer? Ah, perfect. Because no other region had as booming of a rum trade as New England. We said earlier that Massachusetts produced a lot of rum, but Boston had over 20 distilleries <laughs> in this two-mile town. It was the leading rum distiller in the 13 North American colonies. Now I'm going to take a sip of nettles. Let's add to that. A committee from Boston's town meeting wrote to the Massachusetts legislature about the dangers of the Sugar Act. Now, we need to pause here to insert a brief background on the Massachusetts political structure. The legislature in Massachusetts was called the General Court, and it had two houses. Now, I used to be confused about this, Brooke, because the General Court sounds like it would be a court, yeah. not a legislative it's body. Yeah. It's capital C court, okay. and it gets a little more confusing because the House of Representatives was also called the Assembly, and that was the lower house, whose members were popularly elected in their towns by the men eligible to vote which was the majority of adult men in Massachusetts. And similar to our House of Representatives today, so I can get down with that. Yeah, then the upper house is not at all similar. This was called the Governor's Council, whose members were chosen by the House of Representatives. The general court sat in session at the old state house on King Street. Which, if you come to Boston, is actually still there, and you can go to the room and see this nice view of Boston Harbor. Yeah, specifically the Governor's Council. They've recreated it to face the harbor, and you would get this expansive view of Long Wharf. It's really beautiful. A, a few more buildings in the way now, since it's a financial <laughs> district. Yeah. But the old state house is one of my favorite buildings. So definitely worth a visit. Now, the town meeting claimed that the Sugar Act was going to change colonial self-rule. They argued that the Sugar Act, quote, annihilates our charter right to govern and tax ourselves. Worse, this tax is going to set a precedent for Parliament to tax the colonies in the future. The committee's thoughts quickly spiraled as they wondered, quote, for if our trade may be taxed, why not our lands? Why not the produce of our lands and everything we possess or make use of? It's a little bit of an overstatement. Everything we possess. Super dramatic, but I can see how the panic might flow here. Yes. And then the committee concludes that if the colonists could not tax themselves, but instead had taxes imposed on them by a distant governing power, quote, are we not reduced from the character of free subjects to the miserable state of tributary slaves? These are strong rhetoric yeah. and thoughts here. It's pushing it a little for me now. <laughs> yeah. It's notable that Boston's town committee members, though, were arguing against the Sugar Act because it violated what they believed to be their rights as British subjects. And just a week after the town of Boston wrote to this legislature these strong words, a political star in Boston called James Otis Jr. further condemns the Sugar Act. James Otis Jr. is one of our key players in this episode. He came from a privileged and political family in Barnstable, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. Good oysters there, by the way. He went to school at Harvard and practiced law after graduating. He was a brilliant lawyer and won John Adams, 
a young lawyer from Braintree, Massachusetts. And future president of the United States of America. Yes. John Adams later admitted to admiring Otis. Cool. James Otis's sister was called Mercy, and she was also an ardent rebel. She's our other key player today. We have a brother-sister duo. We'll talk to you about what brought this dynamic woman into politics after this break. If you're like us and you love history and beer, join Yule Tavern Tours when you're in Boston. We see many of the historic sites mentioned in this podcast and we drink beer at historic taverns along the way. Whether you're native to Boston or visiting for the first time, you'll learn something new and have so much fun doing it. Mercy Otis, this wonderful woman, her initial entrance into political culture happened by association, actually, because her family had a feud. Family feud. (laughs) With another wealthy family in Boston, the Hutchinsons. The patriarch of this family was Thomas Hutchinson, who was lieutenant governor of Massachusetts at this time in 1764. The feud was was intense, but it's mostly (laughs) one-sided. The Otises, that's James, his father, and Mercy hated the Hutchinsons, but we see less vitriol on Hutchinson's side. James Otis had targeted Hutchinson when Governor Francis Bernard named Hutchinson Chief Justice of Massachusetts in 1760. Otis was annoyed by this appointment for three reasons. A lot of them are pretty valid, actually. First, Hutchinson got the job over Otis's own father. That's more of the family feud. Second, Hutchinson already held several political posts in Massachusetts. That's a little more problematic. Just wait for it, Kristen. And finally, Hutchinson, the new chief justice of the Supreme Court, has no legal experience. This is crazy. How are you going to appoint someone to be chief justice and actually preside over cases if they have no experience? Ugh. Mercy Otis hates him. By the way, Mercy Otis gets married to a man named James Warren, and her married name is Mercy Otis Warren. So we're going to refer to her from here on out as Mercy Otis Warren. She criticized Hutchinson for his hoarding political offices and what she thought was his haughty attitude. In 1772 and 73, she actually published two plays making fun of Hutchinson. In one, I mean, you can just tell how much she hates Hutchinson by this. His character says, quote, I'll make the scoundrels know who sways the scepter and bury all things in one common ruin. Super villainous. (laughs) Yeah. And she's actually the first American woman to also publish political works under her own name. And even later in her life, wrote a history of the American Revolution. Yeah, girl, our little history muse. Yeah, Mercy Otis Warren is like a superhero for women at this time. She also believed in the intellectual equality of the sexes. She argued that it was because women had fewer or deficient educational opportunities that they appeared inferior intellectually. She believed that, quote, the deficiency lies not so much in the inferior contexture of female intellects as in the different education bestowed on the sexes. This is nurture over nature. Right. And we have an understanding of this now. I mean, this is sort of basic, but these were fairly radical ideas in the 18th century. Thank goodness Mercy was intellectually strong because her brother James grew increasingly imbalanced throughout the 1760s. This is why it pays to educate women. Preach. James may have had a sharp legal mind in 1764 during this podcast episode, but throughout his life, he would suffer fits. He screamed at people for no reason. He shattered windows, even fired his gun indoors. Yikes. 
If you think that's bad, know that he also drank a lot. He loved the bottle and you could often find him in a tavern. And this next story, Kristen, is going to really give you a sense of how reckless he could be. In 1769, Otis was attacking six customs officials in Boston newspapers, something he loved to do. That's not even it, okay? He said these customs officials made false claims about him to London and hurt his reputation there, something that he cared deeply about. His principal target was John Robinson, a customs official. And Otis called Robinson in a local newspaper, quote, a blockhead and threatened to, quote, break his head. This is my absolute favorite. <laughs> I can't imagine blockhead was an insult back in the 18th century, but I suppose why not? It had to come from somewhere. You're a blockhead. <laughs> and it's a public insult. So this is what makes Otis particularly reckless. So here he is name calling, which he, you know, he did with Hutchinson, did with Robinson, but then he goes next level. On September 5th, 1769, the day after Otis's insults were published, Otis walked alone into the British coffee house, which was a tavern frequented by loyalists. Not a coffee house, a tavern. And a rebel like Otis didn't happen to stumble into a tavern packed with loyalists and British soldiers unless he was looking for trouble. Right. We know from our first episode that Otis would have had a lot of other options for taverns to drink in in Boston, particularly other taverns that his friends were in. Yeah, that the rebels were in. And so he walks into this sort of hostile ground and Robinson is there with a few other customs officials. Otis approached Robinson and Robinson tweaked Otis is nose. The two men then started to beat each other with their canes, which is such 18th century fighting. We got blockheads and nose tweaking. And one account claimed that Robinson's friends jumped in and held Otis while others struck him with their own weapons. One blow from Robinson crushed Otis over the head, which gave him an enormous gash. This is really sad here because this beating severely affected Otis's mental state, which, as I mentioned, wasn't overly stable to begin with. And he was never psychologically the same. In 1771, he was actually taken to Massachusetts countryside for a, quote, rest. Which we all know what that means. However, in 1764, Otis's inner demons had not fully surfaced. He is still on point. Otis wrote a pamphlet criticizing the Sugar Act. So it wasn't just John Robinson and Hutchinson that he liked to write and criticize. Otis argued in this pamphlet that King George III is the rightful king and that Parliament is the supreme legislative body. He believed that the British Constitution, which was unwritten, was, quote, the most free one and by far the best now existing on earth. If I was someone in Parliament or Britain, this sounds pretty darn good. Yeah, it's not critical yet. But Otis also claims that no parts of the king's colonies can be taxed without their consent. <laughs> here's, where, yeah, here's where it picks up. <laughs> he goes further by claiming that the North American colonies should be, quote, represented in some proportion to their number and estates in the grand legislature of the nation. This idea of Otis's eventually becomes that familiar refrain, no taxation without representation. Otis spoke for many in Boston and Massachusetts by proclaiming that even though he had a problem with this tax, he was proud to be a member of the British Empire because of the rights it afforded him. In 1764, Otis and the colonists weren't longing to separate from the mother country just to be heard within it. But without violent uprisings accompanying Boston's petitions and pamphlets, we know Boston has a propensity to get violent, as we talked about in our first episode, but they don't with the Sugar Act. And so the Crown mostly ignores the bluster of James Otis and the Boston Town Committee's complaints. 
This makes it easier for those in Parliament to think about passing a second tax shortly after the Sugar Act. Colonists began to hear rumors that Grenville wanted to impose a stamp tax next year. Massachusetts complained to their royal governor, Francis Bernard, saying that the only people who should be able to impose taxes on them are their elected representatives, not these men in Parliament. Right. No taxation on representation. But Governor Bernard wasn't a great person to go to for help. He is not a key player because he is the worst. (laughs) He is the worst. He took over as royal governor of Massachusetts in 1760 after spending a couple of years as governor of New Jersey. And Bernard wanted to climb the imperial ladder. No shame there. And overseeing Massachusetts would help him do that, as would remaining steadfastly loyal to the crown. Which is his job. It is. It's not his job to serve the people of Massachusetts because governors in Massachusetts were appointed by the king. So governors didn't need to be liked by the people to keep their posts because they weren't popularly elected. And there's certainly no risk of Bernard being popular. (laughs) But because Bernard was the person with the most direct access to the crown, townspeople appealed to him first. If colonies needed to pay into the British coffers, the men of Massachusetts said they wanted to raise the money themselves. Like they'd been doing. Bernard writes to the Crown explaining Massachusetts's proposition, but it was fruitless. Grenville dismissed this request. Because Boston hadn't mounted much of a protest to the Sugar Act, Grenville anticipated a similarly quiet reaction to the Stamp Act. Colonists might complain, but Grenville thinks they'll eventually get used to paying the taxes. They wouldn't. (laughs) The Sugar Act would be the last time Boston fought with words alone. And stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear about what beer we'll be drinking as the violence starts to escalate. If, as you're listening to this podcast, you're thinking you'd like to learn more about this subject, we have a couple easy suggestions. This podcast is based on a book I wrote, Boston in the American Revolution, A Town Versus an Empire. I love the subtitle. It's a really accessible read and also features key players, so you'll feel right at home reading it. Kristen and I are also part of a fabulous team of historian tour guides for Yule Tavern Tours. So join one of our tours for local craft beers, talk of revolutionary Boston, and seeing historic sites along Boston's Freedom Trail. We also have short videos on Yield Tavern Tours' website called History in a Minute. They feature lots of the people and historic sites we mentioned today and throughout this podcast. We'll link to all of those in the show notes. Next week's beer will be Mean Old Tom from Maine Beer Company. It's a stout and things are going to start getting dark for our next key player, (laughs) who James Otis Jr., by the way, would definitely call Mean Old Tom. See you next time when beer makes history.